Amen. In, in the last chapters of Numbers, really from chapters 26 forward, the Israelites are being prepared to enter the promised land. Their inheritance is near. It is the 40th year of their wilderness wandering. And uh, we're told in chapter 35, verse 1, that the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, at Jericho. And so we're reminded of the important placement of the Israelites. They are in the plains of Moab. And in this particular uh, map, we would locate them around this area, across from uh, the Jericho region, where they will cross the Jordan River to inherit this promised land. Uh, This map behind me is a projection, quite a nice map actually, in uh, different color schemes to tell you what the inheritance of the Israelites will be like. Uh, So that is not the way it is at the moment in Numbers 35. They have not inherited the land, though the conquest under Joshua's leadership is close. All of Deuteronomy will take place in that small window of time on the plains of Moab during this 40th year, ending in Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34. So as Numbers is wrapping up, there are practical elements that prepare the people for the promised land. And um, you would be interested in this if you were going to a place to dwell for a particular stint of time, not just a few you know, days or a week of vacation. But if you were spending months, years, you would be thinking, I need to know a lot more about the layout of this place than I might otherwise need to know. So I need to know where I go for this, what place is best for this, how the borders work. And this, this anticipation of inheritance, it is, uh, it's supported by this kind of forethought in the book of Numbers. Numbers 34 was all about the borders of the land. And we noted that the borders of the land, have, they have this northern border, eastern border, southern border, western border. And that these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they had decided to live outside the land of Canaan, outside the promised land. Nevertheless, there will be some benefits still given to them in God's grace tonight. And we're going to look at a number of, uh, of instructions or information that's going to address the cities for the Levites. One thing to keep in mind, where do these Levites come from? Well, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of Jacob's sons is Levi. So everybody who descended from Levi, uh, these are the Levites. And then one of the Levites ends up being Aaron, from which the priests will come. Uh, So Levi, as a tribe, is important because within Levi, a subgroup within Levi are the priests. And what we know is that there is no allotment of land for Levi. You could look at all of these names, and none of these names on a Bible map is going to give you the tribal allotment for Levi. If chapter 34 tells us about the boundaries of the land that these people are going to inherit, what about those who don't actually get a region dedicated for their tribe? These Levites are going to be spread throughout the land. Where will they live? And it turns out, chapter 35's answer is, they're going to live throughout 48 cities. 48 cities. Which in itself is an interesting number because it's a multiple of 12. 12 times 4 is 48, and sometimes multiples of 12 and multiples of 7 seem to be significant theologically with uh, the way they're used in different stories. I would suggest to you that 48 is not an arbitrary number, but rather built on the notion that 12, one of the numbers that is multiplied out by 4, is really the number of the tribes, and therefore Levites, 
The cities are connected at root with people being Israelites. In verses 1 and 2, here is a mention of, uh, of these cities that they're coming into. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Here's what he said. Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for their all and, and for all their beasts. Verses one to three help us realize something right off the bat here. These Levite cities, 48 that are spread throughout this map, they are cities within a tribal territory that doesn't belong to Levi. In other words, these various tribes are going to give to Levites particular locations, towns really, for them to dwell in. But the Levites don't have an allotment of territory like these other tribes do. They are at they are dependent and are um, dependent on the generosity of and faithfulness of these other tribes to keep up this end of the bargain. These towns will be places the Levites dwell, and they're going to have uh, outside these towns pasture lands around the cities because the Levites are going to have some cattle, livestock, their beasts. They're going to be able to dwell there as well. Um, when people have calculated the percentages of this, and they've done this work, all of these cities still end up being about 0.1% of the entire promised land. Not 1%, 0.1%. Because the size of these cities in the overall gargantuan territory that the rest of these tribes will inhabit is still incredibly small. Even though these Levites will be given towns and some pasture lands, they are, they are told earlier in the book of Numbers there will be tithes from the Israelites given to the Levites, food and, uh, and bread, so that uh, you can be sustained. The territory would simply not be sufficient for the ongoing livelihoods of all of these Levitical families. They will remain dependent on the faithful tithing of the uh, Israelites as a whole in these tribes. So that's just a clarification. Verses 4 through 8. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side, 2,000 cubits. On the south side, 2,000 cubits. On the west side, 2,000 cubits. On the north side, 2,000 cubits. The city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as a pasture land for their cities. What could we envision here? I think this is what's going to help us. The, the way this seems to be describing their, their layout, the city would be in the middle. And then the region around it would be shaped more like a square. So that you have from one wall, uh, from the city to, a, to a, an area, you have a thousand cubits. Thousand cubits, which means when you measure all of the north, east, south, and west, you have 2,000 cubits that I think is basically summarizing verses 4 through 5 here. Uh, the pasture lands dealing with cubits. Now, how much of this, you know, we don't measure things in cubits. So 1,000 cubits is about 1,500 feet. It's just, just shy of that. So we're thinking about 1,500 feet this way, 1,500 feet this way. That means the 2,000 cubit measurement well, this is just shy of 3,000 feet. So this is not enormous. 
even the, the, the length of one mile is 5,280 feet. So the pasture lands from one end of the other with the city in the middle will still be less than a mile long. This is not an enormous territory. And I'm just wanting to give us some perspective here so that these Levites, they're not living in like metropolises. That's not what we're to envision. We're to envision small towns, small towns, which even, you know, small in the ancient world might not even be thousands, but rather hundreds in population uh, that will fill up an area. So these Levites would populate cities. Now, how many? Well, verse six, uh, the cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All right, we've just been given a division here. 48 cities total, 48 cities total, but among the 48, six and 42. Six of the 48 have a special function that the other 42 will not have. And did you catch the the interesting wording? It's the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. What is going on with this, okay? Now, I've never preached a sermon on Numbers 35 before, never did any in-depth study into Numbers 35 prior to this week. Maybe you can resonate with that. Chances are you've never heard a sermon teaching on Numbers 35, but here we go together, trying to think through what is this manslayer language and fleeing to one of these cities of refuge. So among 48 cities, six of them have a unique function. And it's hard to see... um, the red squares here, there's a, a less pretty map, uh, this one, which um, is going to give you in these red circles, one, two, three, and then four, five, and six, these circles to show you six cities that are spread out throughout the promised land. And here's what we notice. Three of these cities are within the promised land, and the other three are on the eastern side of the Jordan River for the Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh tribes. Which is interesting, because even though they have decided not to settle in the Promised Land, the Lord will still give them three cities of refuge. It's important that these are not six cities that are all located in the north somewhere, but they seem to be spread out in the way the book of Joshua will note their fulfillment, so that when they're spread out, someone who needs one of these cities will have practical access okay so it's about spreading out uh, these six cities and then 42 that are not considered cities of refuge but 42 plus 6 still gives you the 48 Um, you can see the book of uh, Deuteronomy and Joshua that will actually name these cities and uh, this one here is Hebron and this one here is Shechem and this one here is Kadesh these are all west of the Jordan here's the Jordan River Sea of Galilee these are all west and then you have Golan and Kiriath Arba. No, that's not right. What is that? Ramoth Gilead. That's the one. I had LASIK surgery and I still can't even read that up there. It's a little blurry. So I'm going to blame the map, not my doctor. And then uh, at the bottom there, Bezer. And so here's three on the eastern side. Uh, these are all named in the book of Joshua. And they're right there on that map. They're on this one too. <laughs> Just a little harder to see. Um, now, verse 7 says, All the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And I think each town is essentially laid out something like this, with the city in the middle and pasture lands going out 1,500 feet, 1,500 feet, 3,000 feet across total. In verse 8, And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. 
I think what that's saying is, well, notice all these tribal inheritances, they're not all the same size. And those that have a larger inheritance will have more cities for Levites. Those that have a, a smaller inheritance will have fewer cities for the Levites. That's the idea. Verses 1 to 8 lay that out. And then verses 9 through 15 talk a bit more about these six cities of refuge. Why do we call these six cities of refuge in this language of a manslayer? All right. Verse 9 says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you. Six of them that we've just mentioned, right? That the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. All right, now we're given some information here. Cities of refuge for who? Well, cities of refuge for someone whose actions resulted in the death of another person. There are six cities that will be a place for that person to go to. And now we're going to get some more information here. In verse 12, the city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger. All right, so you have a manslayer, someone whose actions result in the death of another person. And then you have someone called here an avenger who would be acting to remedy the wrong. What could that involve? Well, the avenger could apply the penalty of execution so that the city of refuge could spare someone from encountering this avenger, or it could be a place where they will then await trial where a judicial sentence is pronounced and they were found guilty of actual wrongful and malicious intent, and then the avenger will be the one administering the penalty. All right, so more on this in a moment. Verse 12 says that these cities will be a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until, that until is very important, until he stands before the congregation for judgment. I think we're to envision here judicial proceedings... That will lead to the acquittal of or the pronouncement of guilt over one whose actions have resulted in the death of another person. And the city of refuge will either be a perpetual place where someone who might have just committed what we would call these days manslaughter. But without a premeditation, we wouldn't call it homicide. But there could be the case that someone's death results from a homicidal act, a premeditated act. And in that case... Standing before the congregation for judgment could lead to that person's pronouncement of death. Death by execution. Execution by the avenger of blood. So this avenger is uh, someone who would be legally legally um, sanctioned to apply. This is not a vengeance that's going out being carried out by someone who has like a personal grievance because here's a crime that's committed and I'm going to take it into my hands. That's not the way this avenger title works. This, a title, this title of avenger is someone who would bear an appropriate responsibility to carry out the penalty. All right, let's add a little bit more information to this. In verse 13, and the cities that you shall give um, shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan Three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. That's what this map shows us most clearly. Three cities beyond the Jordan. Language that uses the phrase beyond the Jordan is always referring to the eastern side of the Jordan. 
Beyond the Jordan always refers to that. And then land within the land of Canaan, three cities, this one, I missed one, this one, this one, and this one, these three circles, that's land, uh, three cities in the land of Canaan, the cities of refuge. In verse 15, these six cities shall be refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. It's important that the Israelites not only know this law, it's going to be the case that people travel through this land who are not Israelites. They're strangers. They're just passing through. Well, this, it's like when you visit another country and you are subject to its laws, like it's in your best interest to find out if things go differently in this country for certain activities than other places. It's like, I need to know how things go here. What, what are the legal, what's the legal setup so that I'm aware and can, you know, I've come to play ball. I don't want to just put myself outside and, uh, of, uh, of these uh, uh, legal constrictions and be in a lot of trouble. Um, these sojourners and strangers would be coming through the land of Israel subject to the same laws. So verses 1 through 15 so far are giving us some big picture ideas. Where are the Levites going to live? 48 places. But it turns out six of those cities will be considered cities of refuge. They're still Levitical cities, but they have a, a dual role. Six of those Levitical cities are cities of refuge for people who have, result, have acted in a way that's resulted in the death of another. Now let's break that down. Let's talk about premeditated murder. All right, verses 16 through 21. This is the category of premeditated murder. Verses 16 to 21. But if he, this is the manslayer, if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death. And he died. He is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. These first few verses are giving some examples of objects. All right? We've thought about an iron object. Uh, we've mentioned here a stone tool. And then we've mentioned a wooden tool. These are, these are what you might call weapons to be used not only as tools, but as weapons to inflict the kind of harm that leads to someone's death. And it is... If a death is caused by a tool that could also function as a deadly weapon, then it could suggest hostility and not an accident, right? It could suggest intent behind that, that I'm going to use this stone tool or this iron object or this wooden tool to ensure the death of this person and therefore, so not just manslaughter, I've committed murder. That was my intent with this tool. To strike until that person stopped moving. Premeditated murder. Now, what if, so what if that's going on? Well, it says here in verses 16 through 18, the murderer shall be put to death. Who's going to do that? In verse 19, the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. This is in the law of Moses meaning that this is a legally sanctioned activity. And then we must ask as a reader, well, who's the avenger of blood? Is there like a guy, like somebody who just, he is that for the land and they just like call him up and, and he's like, I'm the avenger of blood. And so here's the case. It's actually more complicated than that. I had never learned until this last week that the avenger of blood 
is the same word used in the book of Ruth for a different circumstance about a family redeemer when there is some kind of loss that needs to be made up. And that the avenger, it is relative, no pun intended, but maybe, it is relative to the particular region and household affected by the death. In other words, when a loss is incurred by, within a family... The avenger of blood is a relative of the deceased. And that means in each case, throughout these different uh, regions of the land, the avenger of blood is a different person, depending on the case. That's right. So the avenger of blood is a family member. It's the same word that is a, a responsibility that you could have like in the book of Ruth or elsewhere where someone acts on behalf of a family and maybe it's an act of redemption. Maybe it's economic hardship that's restored. Maybe it's the, the, the death of a, a brother. And so the wife marries um, her, uh, her, uh, ex, her uh, former husband's brother to raise up offspring in his place. The, the idea of acting... In view of a loss. Well, this is quite an extreme example. Here, a horrible situation has resulted in the death of a family member. And the person who is the avenger of blood is a relative who applies the punishment of death. So this is heavy, isn't it? The avenger of blood shall put him to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And then verses 20 and 21 say, if he pushed him out of hatred. So now we don't have a weapon in view. Okay, it's just the two hands. If he's pushing him out of hatred or hurling something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. In verses 16 through 21, premeditated murder, certain examples have a weapon in view. Other examples don't have a weapon in view other than the hands of the murderer. And we recognize in verses 20 and 21, someone could intentionally and out of hatred lie in wait. You see that language lying in wait in verse 20. That tells us this is not some rash action. Someone has thought this out. They're actually planning to do this. Pushing him out of hatred. Well, this may mean pushing him like right off a precipice perhaps. Or lying in wait and coming at him with some kind of object he hurls at him. Or striking blows with the hands until death. All of verses 16 to 21 envision the act of murder. And what is the penalty if someone has committed homicide? The penalty for the criminal is death. More on uh, some Old Testament background on that for a moment that we'll look at in Genesis chapter 9. But uh, for now, let's move to accidental killings. It is the case that someone could die as a result of an unintended, uh, that the action was unintended with that effect. So in verses 22 to 29, accidental killing. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait... Or used a stone that could cause death. And without seeing him, dropped it on him. So it's just a a horrific accident. No one meant for this to happen. But nonetheless, that person died. Though he was not his enemy and he did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. That means the congregation is going to be represented by judicial actors here. 
leaders who within the, the tribes of Israel are going to hear a case and they're going to deliberate. And, and so this person is insisting, I did not intend to do this. And they're, they're hearing that testimony and they're deliberating all the factors involved. And you can imagine even in contemporary cases how complex things can get. But here is this envisioning of verse, in verses 22 through 23, uh, verses 22 through 24 rather, of an unintended death. Accidental homicide. Or accidental uh, death. I say homicide, but I'm using that more with premeditation. So an accidental killing. When the, when the commandments say you shall not, you know, something or other, and they have all these different, you know, things we can fill in the blank. You know, we, we know the sixth commandment is you shall not murder. And it, it's very important that it's translated that way. The language is not, you shall not kill. Because there are times where even in the Old Testament, there is a justified taking of life, a lawful taking of life. You shall not murder is very specifically identifying the unlawful taking of life. And that's what uh, verses 16 to 21 mentioned. And then verses 22 to 29 are about accidental killing. So we continue. Verse 25, still within the accidental killing section. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. What you have in view is the congregation here recognizing the unintended act. It was not premeditated. No one meant for this death to take place. And therefore, the congregation releases a decision on behalf of the manslayer and he is spared from the penalty to be applied from that uh, avenger of blood. So where does this manslayer go? Well, he shall be at the city of refuge to which he had earlier fled. It seems that maybe the order goes this way. A death happens and the person responsible goes to the city of refuge while things are worked out. And maybe he's brought out of that city of refuge for the hearing, some kind of deliberation judiciously. The verdict comes down. He is not to be executed. This was not premeditated. At least, at least this is the ruling, even in the imperfect cultures of the day. And uh, therefore he returns to the city of refuge to stay. He's not going to be put to death. He is going to stay in the city of refuge until someone dies, though. And not just anybody. In verse 25, he remains in the city of refuge, one of those six cities, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. We're thinking here then, of course, of Aaron as the first high priest of Israel, and then Eleazar, his son, and then Phinehas, his son. There's a succession of the high priest, but there's only one high priest in Israel. It's the one anointed with this holy oil, and they are this chief or high priest among all the other priests. The death of the high priest is what changes things for the person in the city of refuge. Now, I, I do want to notice that the Old Testament envisions in Genesis chapter 9 the penalty of death being applied when a murder takes place. In Genesis 9, for instance, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, let's call that person the manslayer, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In Numbers 35, it's the manslayer's blood shed by the, the uh, avenger of blood. For God made man in his own image. I've always found it fascinating 
that the justification given for this action, that the shedding of man's blood, murder, is to have the response of the murderer's death, murderer's death being what is demanded. It's grounded in the fact that we are made in the image of God. That it is not some small thing that a human being takes the life of another human being. That that is of such grave, horrific reality. That the fact that an image bearer set upon with intent to murder another image bearer. That the way to show the value and importance of what was stolen is to take the life of the murderer. That that demonstrates for all, not only what should be deterring people from acting in such ways, but to uphold the fact that God has made man in his image. And it is a serious thing for an image bearer to take the life of one made in the image of God. Chapter 35 of Numbers seems to have this kind of thing in the background, right? Even though this is in Genesis 9, way earlier than the days of Israel. The, the Israelite code here, the, the law in, Genesis, in Numbers 35, seems to recall that same principle from Genesis 9. And now we just have other labels. The manslayer is the one who sheds the blood. And then the avenger of blood is the one who would uh, rectify that situation, legally sanctioned to do so. And I really emphasize that. This is not some act of rash vengeance because somebody found a way to to sort of get even. That's not what this is. Numbers 35 is operating with different reasoning. Now, Numbers 35, 26. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. Well, now this is a curveball. Okay, so what this is saying is, in verses 26 and 27, if you have been found not guilty of premeditated murder, you must be in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But let's say you think to yourself, well, I don't want to, so I'm going to leave. I mean, the city of refuge is not a prison. That's not what this is. But it is a region to which you are confined. The reasoning here is the death of the high priest seems to have some kind of releasing. And I'm going to use the word atoning very carefully here, but I'm only meaning it in a picturesque way. A life is brought to an end that... Is associate, that, that in some way releases or compensates for the loss. For the murderer, what's the life that is brought to an end? The murderer's own life. But here's the person who's maybe just guilty of manslaughter. They're in the city of refuge. They must stay there until a death as well. Not their own death, but the death of the high priest of Israel. And that when the death of the high priest of Israel takes place, the Lord seems to grant that now a death has occurred. And it's a death counted in the place of the one whose actions had resulted in an image bearer's life loss. There's a substitutionary principle at work there, isn't it? Okay, so more on that in a moment. And you know already where I'm going to go with it. But in verses 26 and 27, you know, we've known each other long enough. You know I'm going to talk about Jesus as the substitute. And indeed, the atoning work of the high priest seems to foreshadow that. That the death of this high priest has a releasing effect. Now, if 
If the manslayer has been brought before the congregation and the judicial representatives have given him a verdict, if he leaves the city of refuge, he is doing so defying the instructions of God, rebelling against the judicial authorities who have acted on behalf of Yahweh. And in that sense, he has now taken his life into his own hands. There is an escalation of the circumstances that did not need to happen, and yet he knowingly full well made it happen. And therefore, the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of the city of refuge and kills the manslayer. And the avenger of blood bears no guilt for doing so. Verse 28, for he, the manslayer, must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. All right, this is remarkable to me. Let's, let's imagine someone uh, in the land of you know, West Manasseh. And West Manasseh doesn't have one of these cities of refuge. So he's got to leave his territory. He's got to go to the city of refuge, even though he did not premeditate the death of the person that died. But after the death of the high priest... The Lord counts the death of the high priest in his stead. And now he may return to life as he had left it. There is a a freedom and a restoration principle in view there. And not because he made the situation right. But the death of the high priest in some way is counted for that. This is not just for the generation of Joshua. It says in verse 29, These things shall be for a statute and a rule for you throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. So here they are going into the land. And these are going to be abiding statutes for their Israelite community. That these tribal allotments and these six cities of refuge shall serve this function. Now what's the process look like? In, In verses 30 to 32, the process looks like this. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. There's confirmation of this in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6, a minimum of two to three witnesses is necessary. And it tells us here, no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The murderer must be put to death on the basis of multiple attested witnesses because of the seriousness that the penalty is. There are other penalties in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Exodus where compensation for a wrongful act might just be compensation that's financial. You might have to make restitution and not actually have your life demanded of you. But it's actually a really good thing that substantial testimony is required for the ending of your life. This is to ensure, as much as one could in a fallen world, a judicial proceeding that is not going to be tainted by simply uh, some kind of uh, vengeful act of a witness saying, oh, this person did this, and then that person's life is, is taken. It's to ensure as much as one can with a judicial process involving sinners, evaluating sinners, that they are pursuing what is right. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. In verse 31, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. You know what this envisions? This envisions somebody who is guilty of murder, but might have the means to say, well, you know what, in my place, what if we just do this? What if we can just strike a deal, and here's how we can work this out, and 
I like what one writer said. He said, this will, this will prevent someone from using their wealth and resources to find loopholes and they be set free. Whereas others who could never ransom their life will be guilty of it. It would ensure that no matter the standing of the rich or the poor, if you are guilty of murder, who you are and what you have isn't something used to bribe or manipulate or something like that to tip the weights of the scales of justice. Instead, the emphasis is on the fact that your actions intended to end the life of God's image bearer. So therefore, if you're guilty of murder, you can't offer something in ransom for your life. So if you are guilty of that kind of death, you shall be put to death. Then in verse 32, we've thought about the, the murderer who has premeditated the act, right? Well, what about the manslayer who is, whose uh, actions were unintentionally um, uh, uh, taking place here? The unintentional death of that image bearer. In verse 32, you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. He says, no, no, we're not going to do that either. If you're guilty of murder, the penalty is going to be what it is. If you are guilty of manslaughter, the unintended killing of an image bearer, the penalty will be what it is. You will stay in that city of refuge. And you cannot leverage other means just because you can and others couldn't. And and I think the idea here, uh, as one person put it, is to prevent bribery and loopholes that the poor could never leverage, but that the rich could avail themselves of. And we we know that even this kind of corrupted thing happens in our day. It's nothing new under the sun, where people of power and influence and great resources can ensure the kind of legal uh, holes as well as legal representation that might not be so easily acquired by other people without their means. And uh, we could easily be frustrated knowing that judicial processes did not go the way they ought to have because of who that person is. And the Bible knows that the weights of justice ought not be tipped in those directions. So I appreciate, in verses 31 to 32, the clear emphasis on the fact that a life has been intentionally taken or unintentionally taken, and there are penalties that should be applied consistently. There's something that feels right about that. Because we know in our conscience that the pursuit of justice and righteousness ought to have a kind of blindness to it in that way and not taking into account the various social and economic factors that can easily work its way into situations. Now, the end of our passage tonight in verses 33 to 34 is the danger of defiling the land. Now, up to this point, we've talked about how there are 48 cities. Three on each side, six total, are going to be cities of refuge for people who have either intentionally or unintentionally killed someone. And then a congregation and representatives will legally convene to render such judgments. The one guilty of murder shall be put to death by a relative of the family. uh, The family of the one whose life has been taken. And then the one only guilty of manslaughter, and I say only not in a diminishment of life way, of course, but the one who's committed manslaughter and not premeditated murder shall be confined to one of the six cities of refuge until the death of the high priest. And the reasoning is left for the very end of the chapter. Look in verses 33 to 34. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except, except 
by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Verses 33 to 34 is the the writer's grounding of all the logic we've seen earlier. What's the point here? Well, the God who is holy, holy, holy dwells in the land of Israel, symbolized by the tabernacle and later by the temple in Jerusalem. He is a holy God who has set apart his holy people. And if they act in ways toward their image bearers that result in the death of others, this is a, what's called a spiritual defilement or a pollution of the land. And when a murderer does this, the blood of the one who shed that blood, the blood of the murderer, will be what rectifies the pollution or defilement. And if injustice is allowed to reign, And if the abuse and murdering of God's image bearers is allowed to continue and escalate without remedy, then what you have would be a people polluting and defiling the land that Yahweh has set apart, rejecting his laws and living in abject um, neglect of the code he has given them to follow. He says in verse 34, you shall not defile this land in which you live because it's the land in the midst of which I dwell. So it's the holiness of God that sanctifies and sets apart this place. And if they don't deal with matters of justice in a way that honors God and ensures the proper carrying out of these various penalties, either in a premeditated sense or in the manslaughter sense, then they are defying the Lord's words and they are not acting in ways that preserve love of neighbor but rather may ensure the continued abuse and taking of life unlawfully, defiling of the land. And we read in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28 that the defiling of the land, the polluting of the land with injustice would lead to God bringing judgment. And just read the prophets, friends. Read Isaiah 1. Read Amos 1 and 2. Read these prophets, major and minor, and you will see that the Lord's indictment against the people of Israel over and over again is not only in their false worship, in their idolatrous actions, but in their failure to love neighbor, but in instead to solidify acts of injustice in their midst. And the Lord brings judgment upon them. Verses 33 to 34 root all of this logic in the holiness of God. And the uniqueness of the people of God in that land of promise. Now, in our last few minutes together, I want to show you something from Joshua. Let's go to Joshua chapter 20. In Joshua 20, the conquest has taken place and the allotments of the land have been um, determined. And prior to Joshua 20, a lot of these tribes are named one by one by one. Here's chapter 20. Chapter 20, the heading is the cities of refuge. Chapter 21, cities and pasture lands allotted to Levi. Why, what is the focus of Joshua 20 and 21? Joshua 20 and 21 reports the fulfillment of Numbers 35. So Numbers 35, they're to prepare to go into this land and to set apart 48 cities, six of which to be cities of refuge. And in Joshua 20 and 21, the report of its completion is given to us. That's one of the big functions of the second half of Joshua, to tell you that they're doing what the book of Numbers in its final chapters was telling them they need to do. 
And the book of Joshua in chapters 20 and 21 highlights that. But it is intriguing, isn't it, that not only do they go into the land, but these cities will have a death of an individual that compensates for the act of injustice and unrighteousness committed by the murderer. The murderer's own life, and then quite powerfully, symbolically, the high priest's death that brings a kind of cleansing and release so that the defilement of the land is tied to God's promise to deal with this defilement in ways that will uphold His holiness through the death of the high priest, this one anointed with oil. So here's this person staying in the city of refuge, and that the high priest's death brings cleansing. This is one of the main connections, I think, to the New Testament. Not only do we need to see how the book of Joshua reports the fulfillment of these cities being inhabited and set up, we need to see this important principle that when we bring defilement and pollution, when there is spiritual uncleanness, if you will, it is, it is beyond ultimately the ability of these Israelites to deal with all the pollution of the land. This symbolizes the spiritual problem of sin and corruption and death. All of that is connected in the symbolic world of Israel's ceremonies and laws. Which means it is good news that the New Testament proclaims Jesus as the high priest. Because Jesus doesn't just bring, as the high priest, deliverance for the manslayers bound up in the city of refuge. When Jesus' death brings liberation, the release and liberation from the death of our high priest far surpasses any high priest's death surrounded uh, surrounded by and associated with these cities of refuge. There is an escalation that you sense in the New Testament, and rightly so, because we are the guilty. God does not wrongly accuse or charge us. We have transgressed his law. We bear iniquity, and yet Jesus' death, the death of our high priest, in the benevolent, gracious, merciful act of God, our iniquity, the wrong we have done, all our intentional and unintentional sins, are put upon His beloved Son, so that in the death of the high priest, what we receive is liberation and restoration, and life, not condemnation. Praise the Lord for the gospel. Let's pray together.